rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. A lot of us are familiar with the story of Job, and if you're not, here's a man who was really righteous before God. He had everything. And then one day, God allowed the enemy, saying to take everything away from Job, his family, his possession, and even his health. And as he's proclaiming what we just read, he's sitting by himself in ashes, it says, with, with scars all around him. And he's thinking and, and praying, man, what did I do to deserve this? You are a God that's upset with me. I can feel your rod. And there's nobody that can take my place. And he says, if only there was a mediator, someone who could offer on my behalf my suffering, someone who can make peace between me, Job is saying, and God. But until that day, I am in fear of you because I am suffering and it feels like you are punishing me. When I was uh, about 14 years old, I didn't have my license yet. My mom, my brother, uh, they decided to leave out of town and they left me behind and they forgot to take the keys to the car. Fourth of July weekend, I got in the car, I took off to pick up my buddy. I used to live in Chaparral. As soon as I got onto Carlton Road, bam, I smacked into a brand new Honda Accord. I'll never forget that moment. And it was just an, a little kiss. It was a smack. It was a horrible wreck. I remember looking, the lady was bleeding. I was freaking out. The police came, the news was there. Everybody's making this huge hype because here you have this 14-year-old kid who caused one of the major accidents during the 4th of July weekend. I went home, they took the car and the wrecker, and I remember thinking, oh man, my mom's going to kill me. I was suffering. What am I going to do? We didn't have cell phones back then, but I called long distance to where they were staying. I told my mom, crying and just knowing that I was going to get the rod from her. And it wasn't going to be a timeout. I was literally going to get the rod. For two and a half hours while my mom drove from Monterrey to Laredo, I was pacing up and down, just nervous. She got home, and to make a long story short, she punished me. And I was suffering during those days really, really bad. She let me have it. But you know what? Now looking back at that moment, you know who suffered more than I? She did. I was punished. And I was the one that disobeyed. I was the one that deserved punishment. But she, she stepped in because she had to pay for the car. She had to pay for that other lady's car. I now know that there was lawyers involved because they were trying to sue her. And here's a single mom making up for the mistakes of this stupid kid but not being obedient. She suffered so much more than I ever could have. I don't know where you're at now, but I'm pretty sure we've all had those Job's moments where we're sitting in our ashes, looking up of God and saying, God, why are you punishing me? Why am I going through this suffering? 
Why? But you know what my prayer is today, and not just today, from here on out? That as we're going to read, that we realize that, yeah, our suffering is bad. But Jesus Christ took the ultimate suffering for you and for me at the cross. For our disobedience, he was punished. And my prayer is that when we reflect on that, as I look back at that moment where my mom took the suffering from me, when we reflect on that, our lives are changed. That we are a people that acknowledges that Jesus is greater no matter what suffering we're going through. That Jesus paid the ultimate price for you and for me. So we got your Bibles with you. We're going to continue on the series in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be covering chapter 5 and some of chapter 7. We will see chapter 6 next week. And again, just to remind everybody, the main theme of the author, what he's trying to put out there to his audience and to us is that Jesus is greater, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than anything in the world. Remember, these people were going through suffering, persecution, and they were ready to call it quits. And the author says, no, hold on. Keep living your faith. And since the very beginning, we see that the author seems to compare Jesus to a high priest. If you look at chapter one, he uses a comparison of, of this high priest who would offer the sacrifices for the people's sins, but the difference in the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, is that after Jesus purified us of our sins, Jesus sat down. What does that mean? See, a high priest could not sit down. Why? Because his work was never finished. He had to do sacrifices above sacrifices above sacrifices for the people, for the sins of the people, of the Israelite people, but Jesus, he accomplished it all when he said, it is finished. He completed the purification for our sins. Chapter 2, the author describes the high priest, the ultimate high priest, Jesus, as someone who is merciful and faithful. He shows mercy. Chapter 3, we read that he is the high priest, the apostle. The representative is what apostle means of our confessions. We can come to him and he intercedes for us to God. And then last week, in chapter 4, we saw how the high priest, Jesus, the ultimate high priest, sympathizes with you and for me. We saw that he knows what it's like. He stepped out of heaven into the sinful world and suffered The same pain that you and I did. And today what the author is going to do as we're going to read, he's going to kind of compare the role of a high priest to that of the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing that the author is going to tell us. The first role of the high priest is this. The role of the high priest primarily was to connect God to his people and the people to God. That was primarily what the high priest had to do. Be the mediator that Job was praying about. Someone that would connect a sinful person to a holy God. As a matter of fact, everything about the high priest represented that role. Every single thing. And look what it says here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. 
He says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The high priest's primary role was to be that bridge. And like I said, everything about the high priest represented that. As I was doing the study for today's sermon, I realized that even what the high priest wore was a representation of his role. The high priest would wear this robe that was like a blue colorish, which represented heaven. And on his chest plate, he had 12 stars, which represented the tribes, the nation of Israel. So he stood between the nation of Israel and God, where heaven is, God is in heaven, where he is seated. And that's what he meant. The second thing we see, the second role is that he was the one to offer sacrifices. So here's the second role of the high priest. He was responsible for offering sacrifices for sins. But don't miss this, including his. Look what it says in verse 1 again through 3. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. For what purpose? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Since he himself is beset with weakness. He himself has sin. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The people will bring lambs and bulls, uh, the Israelite people, before the high priest. And what they would do, they would put their hands, the person would put their hands on that animal symbolic of transferring their sins onto that animal. Then the high priest would sacrifice that animal, shed its blood for the forgiveness of that sin. But the problem is that this high priest needed to do it over and over and over because the blood of that animal only covered the sin. It didn't purify it like Jesus did. And the other problem is that he himself was sinful So once a year, he would go to the Holy of Holies. No one else could be in there except the high priest. And he'd go and he'd offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people, the Israelite nation. But he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinful. He too was unclean. And so the author saying, even though even though this high priest represented the Israelite people to God, he was limited. So here's the third role we're going to see of the high priest. He was called by God from among sinful humans who were limited. Look what he says in verse 4. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, several things limited this high priest. The first thing we see in what he's saying here is that the high priest was limited to his genealogy. Every single high priest of Israel needed to come from the genealogy of Aaron. Aaron's sons and so on and so forth. They were called Levites. And if you weren't a Levite, you could not be a high priest. The other thing that limited, like I mentioned, was the fact that he himself was sinful. 
So he had asked for forgiveness from his sins before he could even ask forgiveness for the people's sins, the nation. And lastly, he was limited because a high priest died. The average age of a high priest back then was about 55. So there was limitation to the role of high priest, these three roles we just saw. The fact that the high priest had limits does not make him the ultimate high priest. Now the author is going to switch roles a little bit and start comparing the role of Jesus to the one of the high priest. And this is what he says in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, and he's quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's the difference, a big difference that the author starts saying, look, the high priest was chosen among people. God chose a high priest through his people. But what he's saying right off the bat is the ultimate high priest, Jesus, is God himself. He says, he is my son. And then he says, but in the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? As I was studying and coming close to, I knew I was going to have to bring up Melchizedek. I can't even pronounce the guy's name. But I thought it's in God's word and we don't skip anything here at Grace Bible Church when it comes to God's word. And here's what really got to me. I thought to myself, you know what? When we die and go before our God, and we're going to get to meet all the people we've been studying, and here's the way I picture it. You know, Moses is going to come up and, and say, hey, I'm Moses, and all of us, oh, Moses, man, we read so much about you. You're awesome how you parted the Red Sea. That's awesome. And I bet you that's David. David, yeah, it's me. I could tell. Joshua, right? Yeah, you look strong, courageous. But then what would happen if this guy dressed in a high priest robe comes and says, hi, I'm Melchizedek. And Grace Bible Church will go, huh? And then you look at me. You never told us about this guy, Melchizedek. So that is my guilt. So that's why I feel more convicted to tell you about Melchizedek. <laughs> but for that, we need to go to chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles open, again, go to chapter 7. Because most of this chapter is talking about Melchizedek. And here's what he says. In verse 1 through verse 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You read this about the characteristics of this guy, Melchizedek. Mel, as I know him now because I've studied him well enough. <laughs> and you're thinking, wow, it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? So let's see what we do know about Mel, right? 
And we're told some of the things about Mel. So here it is. Genesis 14 talks about this story of Abraham. After he goes and he saves his, his nephew Lot, he rescues him. There's this huge battle, and they're on their way back. They're celebrating, and along comes this priest. And then we hear that they celebrate, and Abraham gives them a tenth of all his belongings. As a matter of fact, this is the first time in the Old Testament we hear of tithing. His first fruits, everything is given to this guy Mel, and they celebrate. And then a thousand plus years later, David writes about this guy, Melchizedek, in Psalm 110. And then we have another, probably a thousand years later, the author of Hebrews is referring to this high priest, Melchizedek. You know, side note, it's interesting. A lot of people say that the Bible was written by man, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. How, okay, Back then, how does Moses, 1,000 years later when he wrote Genesis before, or 2,000 before this author of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, 1,000 year passes, Moses, David, the author of Hebrews, and they all mention Melchizedek. It's mentioned about eight times in Hebrews and two other times when we just read. How does that happen if they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit? They couldn't go to Google and Google Melchizedek. The Holy Spirit inspired them. So that's what we're told. And then when we just read, these are the facts we just read right now. And let me see if I can break them down. We are told that Melchizedek, Mel, is king of Salem, priest of most high God. He is both king and priest. That's so important. We'll get back to that right now. And then it says that they have no beginnings of the days or end of days. Okay, so must be eternal. And then he says, he continues to be priest forever. But here's what caught my attention. It says, but resembling the son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. A lot of theologians believe that this is a Christophany. What is Christophany? It is a pre-incarnate Jesus, the Old Testament that Jesus appearing in the Old Testament before he came incarnate in the New Testament. A lot of people believe that this is it. And as you read this, you can see, yeah, it sounds like it is. But that word resembling caught my attention. See, if it was a Christophany, as we see in the Old Testament, it doesn't say resembling. It says he is Lord. So what I believe, like most of the Bible does, it is a foreshadowing. It is describing a foreshadowing of the true high priest, Melchizedek. Not that Melchizedek didn't exist, but everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Moses foreshadowed Jesus, the greater Moses. You can go down the line. David foreshadowed Jesus in the same manner. I believe this high priest is a foreshadowing of the ultimate high priest to come. Jesus Christ. And two things. I believe two things the author is doing here by comparing the high priest and then referring to Melchizedek. The first thing that the author is doing here is, again, his, his point since the very beginning, that Jesus is greater than any high priest. And we just saw that. Jesus is God, appointed because he is the son of God Jesus is greater than any high priest. We just saw that too because every high priest needed to do a sacrifice after a sacrifice after a sacrifice. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. And I believe also the main point 
why Jesus is a high priest is that Jesus didn't have a single sin and was not limited. And of course, Jesus lives forever and is seated at the right hand of God. No limitations that Jesus have as the ultimate high priest. He didn't have to be a descendant of Aaron. He did not have to be a Levite. As a matter of fact, we read that Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. He is the ultimate high priest. I think the other second thing that the author is trying to point out here is that Jesus is more like Melchizedek than any other high priest. Again, he was from the tribe of Judah. Melchizedek was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And here's what I believe that stood out to me is that both Melchizedek and Jesus were both high priest and king. You don't hear that anywhere else in the Old Testament. Let's finish our verse for today. Verse 7. It says this. In the days of his flesh, in other words, when Jesus was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. Jesus was perfect. What, what the author says is Jesus completed his perfect obedience at the cross is what he's saying. He says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is describing, the author is describing the, the time where Jesus is at the garden suffering, knowing that he was ultimately going to go to the cross and suffer like no other. And not the physical pain. That's what he was in hurting the most because he knew he was going to suffer physically. What he was hurting the most was the fact that he was going to be separated from the Father because of our disobedience, because of our sins. And here he says he cried out with a loud voice. And we read in the gospel, he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but let your will be done, not mine. God had to put Jesus through the suffering, through the cross, before he was glorified and resurrected. See, the cross, the suffering comes before the resurrection. And Jesus experienced that. He knows. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be in our shoes. But let's remember that before our resurrection, we must endure the cross. And the cross makes us obedient. Our suffering lets us put more faith in him. So here's a point for today, and here's how I want us to summarize. Is this, is Jesus is the ultimate king and priest. But he is my ultimate truth and grace. In our small group regeneration, we're going through the book of John. And I've read John plenty of times, but it's interesting how also when you read God's word, the Holy Spirit reveals something new to you. And there's a chapter in John, John 11, and I, I think you've heard the story. Jesus goes 
to Lazarus, and Lazarus has been dead for three days. And two sisters come up to Jesus. Martha comes up to Jesus first and says, if you were here earlier, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds to that. He says, I am the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. Jesus was acting as king. He was speaking the truth to Martha. I am the truth. I am the king. And that's the king's role. But interesting enough, the sister Mary comes and asks the ve- or says the very same thing that Martha had said. Jesus, if you only had been here earlier, my brother would not have died. And you know what Jesus' response was? He wept. As a high priest, Jesus offered grace. Jesus is the ultimate high priest because he's truth and he knows that we have to suffer. But he's also our ultimate high priest because he offers us grace. (laughs) That's the beauty of the God that we worship. My kids were little. I remember the first time I saw them suffer was when I took them to the doctor and they had to get their shots. And the doctor or the nurse told me to hold my poor baby boys and wow, no, and it was all, I felt their pain, but I knew they had to do this for their own good. And I thought to myself, if I could take your pain, I would. But you need to have this. As they've grown up, they've gone through some challenges and they've come to me with their pain. And I tell myself, I will take your pain in an instant, but I know you have to go through this suffering so you can be more obedient, so you can learn about life. In the same manner I asked you a little while ago when we began, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your suffering. But God does. He knows. But like a father holding his baby boy, he's holding you. As your ultimate high priest, knowing I know you're suffering, but I've been there. I've taken your suffering at the cross. But as a loving high priest, he's tearful and holding you. If we have that perspective, church, we'd see our suffering a little bit different. You knew that this, we know that the suffering is only temporary. And let's be grateful that as Job prayed, if there was anyone who could mediate, who'd be a peacemaker, let's be grateful that God sent his son to be that mediator for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you sent your son. As we just saw, as the Holy Spirit just shared with us, that he is the ultimate king. He speaks truth. His promises are true. And he told us, as he's speaking to his apostles, in this life, there will be struggles, there will be problems, there will be tribulation. That's true. But Father, he also said that he has overcome the world. And as he suffered for us, let us rely on him. Ultimately, let us think of who he truly is, a king, but a high priest who sympathizes, who is merciful, who is faithful, who offers grace, who's given us the gift of eternal life for anyone who puts the trust 
at his work at the cross. Let us focus on that more than anything else. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Love you guys. Love you at home.